Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Jessica Plyley, an assistant professor of women's history at Texas State University, San Marcos. Professor Plyley is here at Yale as the Human Trafficking and Modern Day Slavery Fellow at the Gilder Lehrman Center. She has authored an article exploring the feminist politics within the League of Nations Committee on the Trafficking of Women and Children in the Journal of Women's History, and another article that examines how concerns about white slavery serve to bolster some women's rights advocates' claims that women be included in the Federal Immigration Service at the turn of the century. Today, we talk with her about her new book, Beyond White Slavery, Policing Women and the Growth of the FBI, 1900 to 1941. Welcome, Professor Plyley. Thank you. Let's begin with an overview of your book. Tell us about it. What the book does is it explores the origins and the enforcement of the White Slave Traffic Act, which is popularly known as the Mann Act. The U.S. Congress passed this law in 1910, and it made it illegal to take a woman or a child over state lines for the purposes of prostitution, debauchery, or in the language of the law, any other immoral purpose. Mm -hmm. It fell to the young FBI to enforce this law, and as a result, the story of the enforcement of the Mann Act and the story of the growth of the FBI are intertwined. And when I look at FBI enforcement of this law, what I find is that it was used to police prostitution, which was one of its stated goals. Mm -hmm. But it was also used to police domesticity. So we see the FBI investigating cases of seduction, false promises of marriage, adultery, bigamy, a whole wide range of sexual and romantic uh, misadventures. Okay. And how did the book come to be? Why did you feel it was important to write it? Well, I was very interested in the topic of sex trafficking. It's captured the public's interest uh, in, in numerous ways. Of course, uh, sex is always it's everywhere. at the top of the list. Exactly. And even President Obama just recently spoke out against sex trafficking, calling it modern-day slavery. He called it an outrage. Uh, the State Department has devoted quite a bit of resources to fighting against sex trafficking. And the public, you know, consume products that feature sex trafficking all the time. I'm thinking about the um, Liam Neeson movie, Taken. Mm -hmm. And I had been interested in about the fight against sex trafficking and where it had first started. And I discovered that sex trafficking is a topic that has you know, been around for a very long time. And in the early 20th century, it was called white slavery. Mm -hmm. People fought against it. They organized internationally. They organized nationally. In the United States, 45 out of the 48 states passed local anti-white slavery laws, in addition to the national one that I studied. So one of the things that I wanted to think about was what this history can tell contemporary activists. I wanted to speak to them and to alert them to the fact that they are participating in a social movement and a political movement that has deep historical roots. Mm -hmm. Additionally, I also wanted to think about how gendered habits of mind informed the growth of the American state. Uh, so what I'm referring to there is I'm thinking about how FBI agents, when they investigated this law, brought to, with them their own baggage, their own perceptions of the world about mm -hmm. what women's proper place should be and is, mm -hmm. and how that shaped investigations and shaped the growth of the FBI itself. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. How did you do your research? Uh, the research, uh, I, did, I did research everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I traveled to archives in Geneva, in London, in Minneapolis, Fort Worth, Portland, mm -hmm. um, and all points in between. But the vast majority of, the, uh, of my records that I use the most are housed at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., okay. mostly FBI records. Okay. Um, uh, well, actually, there's some really interesting stories about them. Okay. Um, I use about 1,000 uh, 
a sample of 1,000 investigations. Okay. Out of, there's many, many more. There's probably, you know, 60,000 investigations mm -hmm. that were conducted between uh, 1910 and 1941. And one of the things that I thought was very, very funny that I discovered while I was doing research is that in 1944, J. Edgar Hoover mm -hmm. asked that these files be examined to see if they can be turned over to the National Archives because the National Archives was pestering the FBI to, you know, to hand over some records. And when they were examined, the man examining them said, no, we can't give them over. There's too much salacious detail. There's too much going on here. He said that it would be seriously embarrassing to the FBI. It would be um, politically suicidal for the FBI to hand them over. Now, of course, they did end up handing them over at a much later date. Mm -hmm. But it's the elements that are kind of politically suicidal or uh, very salacious that I find to be really, really helpful mm -hmm. um, in, my, in my work. Uh, the FBI investigated all types of families. Most of these investigations never go to court, and that's the problem uh, from the FBI's perspective, is that they're investigating American families and kind of who are going through personal tragedies, but there is no kind of prosecutorial intent. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I find, or J. Edgar Hoover himself said that between 1921 and 1936, that the FBI had conducted around 47,500 investigations, yet during the same period of time, you only see around 6,300 uh, court cases emerging mm -hmm. out of these. So by looking at the investigations rather than uh, U.S. attorneys' court cases, I'm able to get a much broader view of what it is the FBI was doing mm -hmm. in these investigations. Do you think the FBI was improperly using the Mann Act in, in many instances, since the Mann Act was originally to combat prostitution and it really veered off into a whole other realm? That's a really good question. Uh, they, I don't think that they were misusing it um, from their standards. Mm -hmm. In 1917, the Supreme Court ruled on the White Slave Traffic Act uh, to, to define its scope. And okay. in that decision, it said that the Any Other Immoral Purposes Clause really truly meant any other immoral purpose. Uh, it could be pleasure escapades, it could be affairs, it could be anything. Uh, so the FBI was kind of operating under, you know, from that ruling. Mm -hmm. um, the other really interesting part of this is that for the vast majority of these investigations, particularly into uh, marital troubles and, and seduction cases, were initiated by the citizens involved. Hoover says in 1932 that 70% of these cases um, were started because somebody goes to the FBI office and says, hey, I need help, my daughter has disappeared or my wife has run off. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really look at this law as a heavy-handed FBI top-down surveillance law. Okay. Instead, it's citizens who are begging for help, mm -hmm. and the FBI is there, and they have the jurisdiction to be able to track people down. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, the FBI doesn't really want to be doing this. I mean, in 1939, they pull back and say, you know, we can't, we don't have the resources, we don't have the time, we don't have the budget to <laughs> be getting involved in right. these family quibbles. Right. So. Investigate every wife who leaves her husband and exactly. goes across state lines. Right. Yeah. Um, how does your work differ from much of the other stuff that's out there? That's a great question. Um, most of the stuff that's about white slavery examines the popular culture artifacts, mm -hmm. the movies, the plays. This was a very popular um, topic, uh, the reformers' activism. And most of it, uh, most of the historians who do this work look at white slavery and they look at it, use it as a lens to. Um, analyze a whole host of anxieties, fears of interracial sex, fears of immigration, fears of women taking to the streets demanding the right to vote, mm -hmm. uh, or women working in factories. And so they use it as a way to talk about other um, cultural changes that are occurring between 1900 and 1930. 
and most of them do not look at enforcement. They don't. They they stop there. They look at up until the law is passed. If they look at enforcement at all, they look at the Jack Johnson case, which is a very celebrated case where the African-American boxer, Jack Johnson, he was probably the world's most famous athlete at the time. Oh, really? I'm not familiar with this. Okay. Yeah. In prosecuted for what? For violating the White Slave Traffic Act because he had taken a girlfriend who was a prostitute, but um, they had a more of a romantic relationship. He had taken her across state lines. Was she black or white? She was white. Okay. So and that was the big issue. That's the big okay. issue. And uh, he was convicted um, and he fled and you know left the United States because he didn't want to serve the time mm -hmm. and traveled throughout the world um, until eventually he returned to the United States and served his year in prison. Mm -hmm. um, so most people talk about the per persecution of Jack Johnson as a way uh, that this law was misused to uphold a racial caste system that severely punished non-white men for having sexual access mm -hmm. to white women. Um, so when we talk about enforcement, that's the only case that really gets brought up, or perhaps the uh, prosecution of Charlie Chaplin um, and other celebrities. I, by looking at just the regular cases, or the, the more um, run-of-the-mill cases, mm -hmm. I end up looking at a um, completely different dynamic. Um, yes, interracial sex was very much policed, and I see that in my, you know, in my evidence. Um, Homosexual? No. Uh, really? No, not really. Uh, which is interesting because in the 1920s and the 1930s, places like New York City had a thriving, um, you know, kind of gay scene, mm -hmm. and it's not really policed. Uh, these so are very Hoover, heterosexual okay. cases. So Hoover didn't use the Mann Act? Mm -mm. Really? That's no. fascinating. No, and in some ways the issue of homosexuality from the U.S. federal government um, isn't as present prior to World War II. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Immigration Bureau is keeping an eye and enforcing kind of um, anti-gay uh, policies at the borders, but th you know, the amount of people that they're excluding is very, very small. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not until World War II that we see kind of the, the U.S. state, um, you know, capital S state, um, actually start policing homosexuality uh, very fervently. I see, okay. And so conclusions, what do you conclude in your book? Well, I conclude that, uh, first, that this law was fundamental to the growth of the FBI. When the FBI uh, was first established, or when this law was passed in 1910, the FBI only had 61 special agents. Mm -hmm. Most of them were based on the eastern seaboard. It didn't have very much reach, and it really wasn't doing very much. It was mm -hmm. you know, enforcing some antitrust le uh, legislation and the like. Uh, within five years after the passage of the law, we see that the FBI has been expanded to over 300 cities nationwide. Mm -hmm. And it grows on the back of the, the Mann Act. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're interested in the history of the FBI, you have to understand that the Mann Act is foundational to the ah, FBI, uh -huh. which also implies that policing of sexuality and policing of women is foundational to the FBI's bureaucratic culture. Right. Um, the other thing that I find is that the policing of domesticity tells us much about um, ideas of where women should be and where women shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. The fact that an anti-prostitution law policed uh, women in the home doesn't surprise me at all because when you think about it, women um, are central to both the home and the brothel in interesting ways and men have the same sexual rights in both spaces. Mm -hmm. And the man that goes to both spaces might actually be one and the same. Mm -hmm. So what we see is that women's corporal bodies were policed using the Man Act, whether she was a prostitute or whether she was a wife. But in, interestingly, so were uh, men's respectability was also policed. The relationship of men's bodies was closely monitored by the FBI. 
So if a man had an inappropriate relationship with, with a young girl, he was going to come under the, um, you know, under surveillance by the FBI. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Um, and the other thing that I find, uh, my final conclusion, is that the fight against sex trafficking has a deep history, um, especially on the law enforcement side. Mm -hmm. I conclude the manuscript with this uh, fascinating case study of a 1936 sex trafficking ring that operated here in New Haven. Uh, the people involved were trafficking young girls up from New Jersey and New York to places like Bridgeport, New Haven, Hartford, and all points in between. Mm -hmm. And when we look at this case, or when I look at this case, I find it to be incredibly exploitative. The girls involved um, had no choice in the types of customers they serviced. They had uh, no control over the wages that uh, their work earned, uh, that their prostitution earned. Um, they were in incredibly abusive uh, circumstances. Sure. Yet this was incredibly profitable for the people involved. The FBI estimated that this particular ring earned between $1.5 and $2 million a, a year, every wow. single year. That's, that's between about $24 and $32 million today, a year by today's right. standards. Right. So it's incredibly profitable. And uh, the FBI's investigation was able to, um, to uh, conclude with uh, 39 separate convictions of separate people involved in this. When thinking about sex trafficking today and this 1936 case, I see a lot of similarities. And I think that there's much to be learned by looking in the past to think about what were the contours of sex trafficking in the past, the contours of vice markets, the contours of prostitution. How did it happen? And how did law enforcement try to fight against it? Mm -hmm. Is the Mann Act still in effect today? It is. It uh, is. There was some talk when Elliot Spitzer got in all of his trouble mm -hmm. of, um, of going after him with the Mann Act, although that never really developed. Uh, it seems to be currently being used against Craigslist prostitution and okay. you know online prostitution. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's going through a period of revivalism um, within the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly it's, it's a tool that, that prosecutors now use. Okay. Thank you very much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you so much. For more information about Professor Plyley and her research, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.